Would you join me as we pray? Father, we're very grateful for your word. We're very grateful for all of the, the tones and the, the different notes that your word strikes. And today as we meet a psalm of lament, I pray that you'd give us open hearts to this. Some of us, Lord, may feel like we're ready for this and some of us may not, but I pray that you'd help us to come close to you in your word and to hear what you've said to understand what it means for us. Would you help me as I preach? Would you help all of us as we receive your word? Give us faith. Give us open ears. Lord, would you use your word to help us be more the people that that you're shaping us to be? We know you're bringing us somewhere, Lord, and would you use this morning to, to bring us closer there? Do your work, O oh God, by your Spirit, for the sake of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. A famous pastor wrote a book that was designed to help other pastors lead churches that would grow the way this famous pastor's church had grown. In that book, he had a whole chapter devoted to music. And he said that music was one of the most important aspects of his church's success. I'm not quoting him exactly here, but he basically said, if you get one thing, get this. If you get your music right, your church will grow. And in that chapter, he wrote this. He said, pastors should, quote, decide what mood you want in your service and use the style that creates it. At, and then he names the name of his church, we believe worship is to be a celebration. So we use a style that is upbeat, bright, and joyful. We rarely sing a song in a minor key. In other words, keep it positive. David, Asaph, and the sons of Korah, and the other writers and the final editors of the psalm didn't get the memo, did they? We don't know what keys Israel's songs were sung in, but we do know that at least 30% of the psalms, which is Israel's royal hymn book, at least 30%, by one count, 60 out of 150, are psalms of lament. Songs written to God out of a place of sadness or trouble, pouring out a complaint to God, asking Him to deliver them from a bad situation, and so on. Lament was a big part of Israel's worship. And as we're in this stretch of about four weeks thinking about worship and our own worship, we don't want to miss this note. We want to think this morning about lament and its role in our lives and our worship today. But we want to start right here with Psalm 6, which we just read together. We want to see what's going on in, in this particular psalm. Right? We don't want to just flatten out all the psalms of lament. They're unique. They're different. There are differences between them. We want to look first at Psalm 6, approaching this psalm. And first we want to look at David's situation. 
What's going on here with Israel's king that has led to this expression of lament? Well, the obvious answer is David's not doing well. In verse 2, David says that he is languishing. This comes from a word that speaks about being feeble or faint. Think of a, of a, of a camel in the desert who's all out of water and he's lying there with his tongue hanging out and he can't make it to the oasis. That's, that's kind of the idea. Verse 2 that goes on to say that David's bones are troubled. Now that word for troubled can also, and in other places is translated terrified or horrified. David feels that something is wrong, like in his very skeleton. Verse 3, he says, my soul also is greatly troubled. Same word. My soul is horrified. It is not well with David's soul. He gets there. He gets to it as well at the end of the psalm, but he's not there right now. Inside and out, David is consumed with a sense of dread. Verse 6 and 7 describe the, the tears that flow from this low emotional state he's in. He says, I'm weary with my moaning. Like I've worn myself out from, from crying. Every night I flood my bed with tears. Right? The picture there literally is that his bed is floating on a sea of tears that have come from his own eyes. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. Like I'm crying my eyes out literally. So that's, that's how David's doing why? What's, what's going on? What's, what's causing this? Now, some people have studied this psalm and they've concluded that, that David is sick. And they go to the, the words there about bones languishing and, and they just, well, he's sick. And, but there's some other people who study this psalm, including myself, who are not so sure that's the right answer. There's some, some clues pointing us in another direction. Verse 7 gives an important clue and it says that David's eye, quote, grows weak because of all of my foes. And then, and then we look at how the psalm concludes. Verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil. Verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. So we know that whatever's going on for David here, his enemies are playing a big part in it. Also, David's own sin is playing a big part in this. Verse 1 speaks about God's anger. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. It talks about God's discipline. It talks about God's wrath. And then verse 2 asks God to, to be gracious to him. Where do we see God's discipline, rebuke, anger, wrath? In, in response to sin. And so this suggests that David is in a situation that he has put himself in through his own sin. And as a result, his enemies are after him. And he's overcome with grief and his whole body feels like it's falling apart as a result. That tells me that Psalm 6, and not just me, I've as I've done the work this week and have studied this and looked at other commentators and so on, there's, there's some strong suggestions here that Psalm 6 is probably connected to David's whole experience with Absalom. Right? So it's, it's connected to Psalm 3, and, and which is about that. David's sin with Bathsheba kicked off a chain of events 
which we're not going to sum up now, but we know it kicked off a chain of events that resulted in the land that he was king over falling into civil war. David on the run from his enemies, which included former friends and in fact his own son. God had warned him about this. God told him, 2 Samuel 12, 11, that because of what he did, quote, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So as David runs from Absalom, he knows this is his fault. He knows that this goes all the way back to one night of foolish passion. And because he's the king, his sin has brought the nation crashing down around him. Right? Think of Adam and his sin affecting the human race. David's the king. His sin has now thrown the whole nation into civil war. And the grief at what David has done is too much for him. His body can't handle it. Some of you know what this is like, or you've seen it happen to other people, where grief and remorse is so strong that their body stops working properly. They feel physical pain, and they can't do anything but cry. And this seems to me and to others to be probably the best way of understanding what's going on here with David. Even if it's not Absalom, which is the best that we know, it's another situation like it where David's sin has put him in a spot where his enemies are after him and he's falling apart. So that's David's situation. That's, that's where he's at. That's what's going on. That's how he's doing. Now we're going to look at David's requests. What does David ask God for? Well, look at verse 1, one and 2, which we've referenced already. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. You know how we could sum up these requests that David's making here? He's saying, God, stop treating me like your enemy. And I'm saying this because these words that David uses here are words associated with God's anger towards his enemies. Rebuke, discipline, wrath. These are words that describe how God treats his enemies. In fact, this is so painfully ironic. The three words, anger, discipline, and troubled, are words used in Psalm 2, where God promises to do these things to the people who try to come at David, to David's enemies. Think about that. Psalm 2 is this celebration that God has established David and his sons in Jerusalem and he laughs at the nations that try to attack him and try to rebel against David. And God says in Psalm 2, 5 that he would speak to them in his wrath and terrify, there's that word, trouble them, terrify them in his fury. And now David picks up on some of those same words and he says, God, you're supposed to do that to the people who are coming after me? And instead, you're doing it to me. Please stop treating me like I'm your enemy. Instead, verse 2, he asks for grace, for favor. Be gracious to me. Verse 3 contains this simple question. It's used at least 15 times in the Psalms of Lament. How long? How long is this going to keep going? How long, God, until you show me some kindness? 
Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, he says in verse 4. Turn. This is a word that's, that's used later on in the prophets to call to Israel to turn from, from their ways and turn back to the Lord. And, and, and David's saying, God, would you turn from what you're doing and come back and, and, and save me? See, this is what David's asking God for. He's asking God to turn aside from judgment and to give him grace instead. So that's what David's asking for. Now, before we move on, don't miss how David asks. Do you notice how David talks to God in these verses? Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Do you see how direct he's being? Be gracious to me. Heal me. Turn, oh, Lord. Save me. The contrast here is so strong if you compare it to the way that other people talked to David, right? You go to 2 Samuel, is it 24 or 25 when when, uh, Abigail comes to David and and asks him to to not kill her husband. And and the, the, the way in which the people would use royal language for the king, if it pleases the king, may he not, you know, and they would be so polite. David is not being polite here. And I wonder if some of the words like gracious and rebuke can hide the sheer forces of what David is saying to the Lord. Like, what would this verse, these verses sound like in contemporary English? Stop treating me like your enemy, Lord. Stop being so angry with me. Stop this yelling. I'm falling apart here. Can't you see how long till you let up? Would it it sound something like that? Does that surprise you? This is the tone of much of biblical lament. It's very honest and it's very direct. These are David's requests. And this is how he says them. So we've seen David's situation. We've seen David's requests. There's a final stop here is David's confidence. Psalm 6 doesn't end where we've just been. Psalm 6 ends with David's confidence that the Lord has indeed heard him. Look at verse 8. Depart from me. Get, Get out of here, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord, sorry, David knows who God is. David knows that God listens to prayer. David knows that God has heard his prayer. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And the psalm ends with David's assurance that God is going to do to his enemies what he has promised. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. See that? See how it's, it's back where it should be? Not me, not David the king being ashamed and greatly troubled. But no, now things are set right and his enemies are getting it. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. God is going to stop treating David like an enemy. God will instead treat David's enemies like his enemies, like he promised to do. So what we've just done here is is fairly brief. We've just tried to approach Psalm 6, get a sense of the lay of the land. What's, What's going on here? We've read each of the verses. We've, we've pointed out some of the key features here. David's situation, David's requests, David's confidence. Now we want to move on now 
to a second stage in the message where, where we're going to work a little bit harder to understand Psalm 6. We don't just want to see this. We want to really understand what's going on here. And we want to get at this by asking a simple question. How is this worship? Or what does this have to do with worship? I mean, we're, we're in a series on worship, but more than that, the Psalms are Israel's hymn book. So why in the world would you have a psalm where the king is falling apart like this and basically begging God to stop punishing him? And this song is in Israel's hymn book for everybody else to read. And not just to read, but to sing together. What, what, does, this have, what does this have to do with worship? If worship, as we've seen in the past couple weeks, is supposed to be a joyful response to the truth about God, then why in the world do more than one-third of the Psalms deal with themes of sadness, lament, trouble? Well, let's just start with Psalm 6. What does this have to do with worship? Well, there's probably a few ways we could get at that. I see four answers to that question. What does this have to do with worship? There's four answers. First, Psalm 6 worships God because who is David going to with his complaint? He's going to God. He's not complaining to someone else. He's not writing a, 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 a song about the blue, a blues song that's all sad saying, God has let me down. No, David's going right to God and he's asking him to stop treating him so badly. At least that's the way it felt, right? And he's honest about it. So let's just think about this in human terms. Some of you know what it's like to have someone upset with you, but you don't find out from them because they're refusing to talk to you. You find out from someone else. You find out from someone else that they're unhappy with you and why. That does not feel very great. And, and compared to that experience, isn't it actually wonderful when someone comes to you and says, I'm upset with you because I think you treated me badly here. Can we talk about this? Like, seriously, I love it when people tell me that they're not happy with me. I'm serious. I love it because they're actually telling me instead of someone else, instead of gossiping to everybody else, which is the easy thing to do and sadly the common thing to do. Right? When someone comes to you, they're, they're treating you like an actual person instead of a punching bag. When someone comes to you with their complaint, they're saying that they value you. They value your relationship. They're treating you like a person. They're willing to fight for your relationship. They're not giving up. And in a similar way, but in a much greater way, biblical lament is worship because it's taking all of the stuff that we're feeling and it goes right to God. It's talking to him about it, not somebody else. God is honored when we bring our complaints right to him. Second, Psalm 6 is worship because it recognizes God's sovereignty. David, let's just think about this. David asks God to stop what's happening which means that David trusts that God is able to stop what's happening. David knows that God is responsible for what is happening. David knows that God is sovereign. 
God is the king who rules over all things. Remember Psalm 33? Overturning the plans of the nations, the plans of his heart endure to all generations. What's happening, David knows, is God's discipline, not just random events. God alone has the power to change things and to rescue David. So lament, when we go to God, when David goes to God and says, God, could you fix this? As he does that, he's actually submitting himself to God. He laments to God because he knows God is the one who can actually change things. God can actually step in and rescue him. Lament recognizes that God is sovereign. Third, Psalm 6 is worship because it's based on trust in the promises of God. Well, here's what I mean by that. The whole backdrop to Psalm 6 The reason why what's going on is such a problem is that years before, it's recorded in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David. One of the major covenants, actually the last major covenant in the Bible before Jesus, it's called the Davidic covenant. And one of those promises was in 2 Samuel 7, 11, God said, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Rest. Rest. From all your enemies. And God also promised him, verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Those are the promises that get picked up on in Psalm 2. That's what Psalm 2 is about, as the, as the nations are saying, ah, we're not going to serve the Lord's anointed. And God laughs and says, I've established my son David on, his, on, on the holy hill of Zion. You're not going to not follow him and obey him. This is my plan. I'm going to terrify you in my wrath if you don't obey him. Right? That's the kind of theme of Psalm 2, which is just celebrating these covenant promises God made with David. And here's David in Psalm 6 falling apart because it seems like the script has gotten flipped. And it seems like he's getting treated like an enemy and the enemies are getting off the hook. I mean, David knew there'd be some discipline for what he did with Bathsheba, but this seems like way too much. So he laments to God. This lament comes from a place of saying, God, you promised And it's not happening. So what's going on? It's almost as if David is holding God to his word. But even here, David knows that God is trustworthy. Look at verse verse 4. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Steadfast love is that beautiful word that describes God's covenant-keeping love. David knows God has not changed. He is a God of steadfast love. And this confidence comes out, especially in verses 8, 9, and 10. David believes that God has heard his prayer. That's why David goes to God in the first place, because he knows he's listening. David believes God will keep his promises. So in Psalm 6, David is wrestling with like, God, what are you up to right now? But David wrestles because he believes that God 
is who he says he is and that God is going to do what he promised to do. And that wrestling between God, I believe what you said, but I don't understand what's going on right now, that the space in between is lament. But it comes from a place of believing. And it's this struggle to believe. And that's what lament is and and that honors God. So, lament is worship. Psalm 6 is worship because it flows out of trust in God's promises. Fourth and finally, Psalm 6 is worship because worship is David's whole goal here. What is the main reason that David wants to be rescued by God? Is it just so that he doesn't hurt anymore? Is it just so that his bones feel happy? Is it just so that he stops crying? Is it just so he can go home to his own bed again? That's a part of it. Those are good things to want. It's, it's good. It's okay. It's normal to ask God to just relieve our suffering. But what's the main reason that David wants to be spared from all this punishment that seems to be bringing him down to death? What's the main reason? Verse 5, which we haven't looked up till now. For in death, catch this. God, if you don't let up, I'm going to die. Okay, that's what's going on here. He says, for in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Sheol is the grave, the place of the dead in the old covenant. The Jews believed in a soul that lived on after death, and they knew that the souls in Sheol would would go there. And, And we know from other places in scripture, which you can find in the notes, that they knew those souls had some awareness of who they were. But they also knew that the dead were confined down there in Sheol. The dead couldn't join in the choir at the temple. The dead can't sing. The dead can't tell the living about who God is and what he's done. So like many other places in the Psalms, David asks God to spare him from death, to save his life. Why? So that he can worship God. That's what he's really after here. He wants to live so he can praise the Lord. That's the point of verse 5. In Sheol, who will give you praise? If you kill me, God, I can't praise you. So in Psalm 6, at least up until verse 7, David is not praising the Lord, but he wants to. He's saying, God, please save me so that I can do Psalm 33. God, please save me so that I can do Psalm 150. And that honors God. It honors God when his people say, God, I don't feel joy in you right now, but I want to. I'm I'm not praising you right now, but I want to. I mean, another way we could think about this is that missing something honors that thing. If you don't have something, but you miss it and you want it, that, that's a way of honoring that thing. So as David wants to worship God, even if he's not feeling joy, he wants to, that honors God. The desire to worship God is a reflection of how much he's worth to us. So is Psalm 6 worship? Absolutely, it's worship. It's worship because it's going right to God. It's recognizing God's in control. It's trusting God's promises. And the goal is praise. The goal is worship. So, 
I know we haven't moved through this psalm one verse at a time, but in what we've seen so far, we've got a good sense of what's going on here in Psalm 6. I think we understand Psalm 6. Now, we want to ask some really important questions about what Psalm 6 means for us. What is Psalm 6 and behind it, the Psalms of Lament? What are they saying to us? What do they mean for us? I'm going to make three stops here. The first is looking at lamenting this side of Calvary. We want to consider whether it's even appropriate or not for God's new covenant people to lament this side of the cross. Someone asked me this question about four years ago after we looked at a psalm of lament for the first time. And they said, okay, I get it. Old covenant people waiting for Jesus to come, of course they're going to lament. But is lament appropriate for us in the new covenant who Jesus has come, Jesus has saved us, we've been born again. Is lament for us? Excellent question. It recognizes Here's what's so good about this question. It recognizes something massive happened when Jesus came. Jesus is all turning point of history. All of scripture, including the Psalms of Lament, are fulfilled in Jesus. Just think about that. Jesus fulfills Psalm 6. Jesus is the son of David who, though he was innocent, was treated like he was God's enemy. Though a perfectly faithful son On the cross, he was punished like a rebel so that we who are really rebels could be treated like we were God's sons. John 12, 27, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he said, now is my soul troubled, which is most likely a very strong echo of Psalm 6. Jesus is quoting Psalm 6, saying, I feel like David felt As my father treats me like an enemy. Jesus lamented. On the cross, what did Jesus do? He lamented. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of Psalm 22, a psalm of lament. Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Every psalm of lament finds its truest expression and its fullest meaning on the lips of Jesus. Does that mean now that Jesus has risen from the dead and is ruling at his father's right hand, has been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions, as the Psalms and Hebrews say, does that mean that there's no more lamenting? The answer is not yet. Not yet. One day there will be no more lament, right? Last couple chapters of Revelation, the Father will wipe every tear from our eyes and lament will be an old tale. Remember when we used to do that? Remember when we used to feel sad? It's going to be an old story. But right now, you and I are living between the already of Jesus' first coming and the not yet of his second coming. He has already saved us, but not all of his enemies are under his feet. Our souls are raised from the dead, but we're still waiting for our resurrection bodies. And what do we hear earlier today from Romans 8, 23? We groan inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And I think we could argue just on the basis of that one verse that lament is a reality for us in this time of already and not yet. We could go other places. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul describes himself as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Doesn't that just capture the already but not yet? I'm sorrowful and I'm always rejoicing at the same time. But maybe the best place for us to see new covenant lament is Revelation chapter 6. John is given this vision of heaven. We've already seen all creatures praising the lamb who was slain, the victory of Jesus. And what does John see? He sees, quote, the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice. Okay, these souls are described as being under the altar in heaven. They're in heaven. Just, just know this. These souls, John sees them in heaven. And they cry out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? What's that the language of? It's the language of lament. How long, Lord? We're waiting for you to clean this up. We're waiting for you to judge our enemies. We're waiting to get those new bodies you promised. We're waiting for the new creation. How long? So if souls in heaven are lamenting as they wait for God to fulfill all his promises, then then yes, we lament. Our lamenting has changed, no doubt, as we see so much clearly how Christ has suffered, lamented, raised by the Father's power. But as we wait for him to make all things new, as we groan in these bodies that are still falling apart, lament is a part of our vocabulary. And so for the rest of this morning, in the final two points, I want to make a point as strongly as I can. We, and I mean we, like us, Manual Baptist Church, the people in this room, the people who are listening, we need to lament. Psalm 6 and the more than 50 other psalms of lament are in the psalms on purpose. David's words became Israel's words as they sung his words together and you and I have to be able to do the same. And I think this is so important. It's so important because if you haven't noticed, Christians don't lament very often or very well if at all. We see it in the Bible. We see that they did it back then. But we have a really hard time doing it ourselves. I saw this. I'm just going to give an example from our own church. In late spring, we had church camp out of Torch Trail Bible Camp. And in one of our chapels, Josh walked us through Psalm 13, a psalm of lament. Jordan Lapine had just preached on it the week before. And Josh walked us again through the big ideas of the psalm of lament And then told us to use that psalm as a basis as we prayed in small groups for our church, our community, and our world. And I was in a group, some of you are here, very godly Christians whom I respect very much. And guess what? In that whole prayer time, not a single person prayed anything that sounded remotely like lament. And I'm not saying that as a criticism of any of those individuals. I'm saying that as a criticism of of us as 21st century Christians, we've never been taught how to do this. We've never been shown how to do this. So we just, 
We just don't know how. And I think that needs to change. We need to know how to lament because life is messy, isn't it? God's promises are very often not kept in the way that we think they're going to be kept. When David heard God would give him rest from his enemies, he probably didn't picture running away from Absalom. And when we hear, I will be with you always, all things work together for good. We don't think that means some of the things that are going on in some of your lives right now. I mean, we can see now, David, you don't know how this ends. This goes all the way up to Jesus. Hang on, David. But David couldn't see that. Right now, we can't see how our stories end. And we wrestle through that tension with lament. I've seen, and some of you no doubt have seen, what Christians do with that tension between what should be and what is if they don't know how to lament. I mean, some Christians, it's really bad because they came to faith because someone told them God had a wonderful plan for their life. Others maybe have a better understanding of the gospel than that, but, you know, they might believe God's in control, God has a purpose, but they have no idea what to do with the grief that swells up in our heart when we sit in the doctor's office and hear the diagnosis that we didn't want to hear or we watch our prodigal child ruin their life or we feel the crushing weight of depression for what feels like one day too many or we sit in shocked horror as yet another hero of the faith comes out as a fake, an imposter. Or we just turn on the news and see all the darkness in the world and have no idea how to process it. What do we do with that tension when it doesn't feel like Jesus is with us always? We can't see any way God's working this for good. Or we've confessed our sins and it doesn't feel like we've been cleansed from anything. Some people lose their faith. Their faith can't handle the pain of reality, so they walk away. Some people keep their faith, but their faith just kind of withdraws from real life, and it becomes a sort of private spirituality that doesn't do anything. Others give in to fatalism, which basically means saying what will be, will be. God's in control. What's happening is happening. And they trust God, but they, they lose all sense of, of, of a warm relationship with him as they walk through life. Now, we could add more things to this list of the way that Christians try and cope with the pain of reality. But what I hope we can see is each of these coping mechanisms ends up doing real damage to that person's soul or their witness or their ability to walk with God in the world. And it's so sad because this huge chunk of psalms in the Psalter shows us the better way, the way to how to walk with God through the pain of real life and its lament. Psalm 6 shows us God's big enough for us to come to him with our complaints, and they show us how to bring our complaints to God in a way that still recognizes you're in control, God. I know you're going to keep your promises, and I'm fighting for joy in you because I want to praise you. I'm convinced that your spiritual health depends on your ability to pray honestly, which means your ability to lament. You need to be able to do this. Now, some of you might be good lamenters and you just might not know it. You might not associate that word. 
You know how to pray and tell God, Lord, I don't know what you're doing right now. I have no idea what you're up to. Could you please have mercy on me? You might pray like that already. That's that's language of lament. Honest prayers. But I want to encourage you to take up the Psalms of lament. It's a rich vocabulary God's given us and make these prayers your own. Now that doesn't mean we rip them out of context. No, we, we understand what these Psalms meant on David's lips, what they meant fulfilled in Christ. And then we want to take them and pray them for ourselves as we fight for joy in God. Now here's a very simple suggestion to help you do this. Here's a place to start. I, I would, I could tell you, you know, go get um, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy out of our library, a whole book on lament. Beautiful. You could do that. But here's just a simple place to get started. Start using these two words in your prayers. How long? Or maybe four words. How long, O oh Lord? That's the, re- that's the most common refrain of lament. 15 times in the Psalms of lament. I found that this simple question is a very profound way to give voice to my lament as I pray to the Lord about my own suffering, about the stuff in our church, the suffering of others. How, how long, O oh Lord? And it's a, it's a question that orients our hearts towards the promise of, behold, I am making all things new. And as we wait for that day, we say, how long, O Lord? You know what? You might feel uncomfortable the first few times you pray these words. It might feel disrespectful, but it's not. You're asking God this question. You're going to him. You're recognizing he knows the answer. He's got the power to fix this. You know what he's promised. And you're struggling and you're asking him to keep his promises. What could happen to the richness of your faith if you just begin to work that one simple prayer into your vocabulary? It won't mean you stop struggling. It won't make everything better. But what, what it will mean is that you actually are walking with God through the struggle. And maybe that's just a place to start and move on from there towards drawing on the rich language of lament God's given us in the Psalms. Our final stop this morning is talking about lamenting together. If Christians have a hard time lamenting on their own, don't we have an even harder time lamenting together? And isn't part of the reason this pressure we feel, this cultural pressure in Western churches that when we show up on Sunday morning, we've got to pretend everything's okay. How was your week? It was great, even if it wasn't. But you've got to say that because if you say, actually, it was really hard, the other person's going to stare at you and go, uh, and it just gets really awkward because we don't know very well how to help each other when we're not okay. Isn't that true? And so we pretend we're fine, 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 because we've all got the joy, 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 joy down in our hearts, even if we don't. And I think that lament can really help us here. The Psalms of lament show us it's normal to not be okay. It's normal to be in a hard spot. It's normal to say, I had a brutal week. It's normal to say, I'm struggling with my faith. It's normal to say, I have no idea what's going on. And lament can help us as we pray together. When someone says, actually, it was a hard week, lament can help us process that. And we can pray and say, Lord, my brother, my sister, they're, they're in a hard spot here. We have no idea what you're doing. I don't even know what to ask for. 
But would you help them? We know that you know what you're doing. God, would you step in? Lament can help us pray for each other when we don't know how else to pray. And lament can help us be a church where we can be real with each other. We can come broken and help each other get closer to the Lord. We need to get fluent and lament together. As we pray together formally, like as the elders lead in prayer from the pulpit, we want to get better with lament. Did you hear what Brad did last week? He talked about the wildfires. He said, Lord, we lament what we see going on there. What else can you do as you see the world burning up? Now, I'm not, I know overall wildfires are actually down from last year, but as we see part of our world burning up, we say, Lord, this is, this is really hard. What's, we want to get better at lamenting together in our prayer services once a month. That would be a normal way that we pray. Finally, think about lamenting in our singing. Remember, one-third of Israel's songbook was lament. What percentage of the songs that we sing together could be classified as lament? I think the answer is probably zero or pretty close to it. There aren't many good singable laments out there. Now, I really hope this changes in the years ahead. Because just like we see in the Psalms, we need to be able to come together. I mean, just think, on any given Sunday, I mean, this Sunday, there are probably a bunch of us here who are not doing great. And we want to be able to have songs that those people can sing with honesty. I mean, we already work on this. We already try to avoid songs that are unrealistically uppity. So, for example, I love Fanny Crosby. Some of Fanny Crosby's songs are some of my favorite hymns. And I'm sure it was true for her that this was her story, this was her song, praising her Savior all the day long. I'm sure that was true for her, but I can't sing that song honestly because that's not my story my song. I, I wish it was, but it's not. So, so we try to avoid singing songs that make us say things that are just unrealistically untrue. But in the years ahead, I hope that we can find at least a handful of good biblical laments for us to sing together. Now remember, in all of this, we're not forgetting about joyful praise. We're not forgetting about Psalm 33, Psalm 150. Remember this, joyful praise is the goal of lament. That's where we're headed. Lament is how we get there. Don't forget that. Lament is about crying out to God from a place of sorrow to bring us to a place of joyful praise. So we're going to end here this morning with a song that we're going to sing for you. We'll invite you to join us on the last chorus. Maybe we'll sing this song together in the future, but just for now, we encourage you to listen, to take this in, and to reflect on how these words or words like this could help you and us together draw near to God when you are in a Psalm 6 type situation or when someone you love is there. And may this be a first step for some of us of using the language of lament in our own walks with God. Father, thank you that the day is coming when you're making all things new. And as we wait for that day, would you teach us to walk with you with honesty?
with authenticity. Would you teach us to lament as we fight for joy? Would you help us, Lord, in our individual lives and in our life together to use this language? Not that we would just be a sorrowful people, but that we would give voice, Lord, to the sorrow that is there, that we might move towards authentic joy. Would you help us with this, Lord?